welcome back to And The Winner Isn't, a podcast for the movie aisle in which we take a look back at a film that didn't win the Oscar in the category in which it was nominated and we try to decide whether our choice would have been a more worthy winner or not. And when I say we, I mean me, Marie, and my friend Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Marie. How are you? I'm fine. How are things over there? Much the same, I'm afraid to admit. <laughs> Indeed. I know. It's just getting on with it. Back to work this week and I'm exhausted, but, you know, can't complain. At least I have a job still. There you go. You know, and uh, a quick shout out to uh, the Kentucky Derby, the oldest uh-huh. continuously run sporting event in the world, in, uh, or excuse me, in North America and Canada, uh, my side of the world, and in my beloved home city of Louisville, Kentucky, authentic. Uh, if you had that one, it paid eighteen ten. Not a bad price for a $2 bet. You didn't, though, from the sounds of it. the silence is deafening (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was not a good year for dan picking the ponies this go round maybe it's a better year for dan picking the movie because you chose this time nice Uh, nice and you tell us what you chose for us to to watch this yeah yeah so we went back to 1989 I'm sure there are probably plenty of jokes about driving Miss Daisy out there. I know I'm guilty of a few of them. But uh, there were certainly more and better choices on the list than that one that should have won. We agreed uh, Field of Dreams would be today's discussion, although I'm going to give a shout-out to Dead Poet Society as well. because okay. That one could have beat Daisy as well and should have. But uh, Field of Dreams, 1989, Kevin Costner's PG-rated, one-hour, 47-minute drama, family fantasy film, and it fits into all those categories, which (laughs) I'm going to make a plug, that makes it worth the victory, and it should have. Uh, It was not, though. Um, Released on the 5th of May, 1989, which, ironically enough, was Oaks Day that year, Uh uh, by Universal Pictures. IMDb says, an Iowa corn farmer, hearing voices, interprets them as a command to build a baseball diamond in his fields. He does, and the 1919 Chicago White Sox come, better known as the Black Sox for their cheating scandal, but 7.5 out of 10 stars on the IMDb. Directed and written for the screen by Philip Alden Robinson, based on the book Shoeless Joe, which was written by uh, W.P. Kinsella. It stars Kevin Costner, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Amy Magden. And cinematography by John Lindley. Nominated for three Academy Awards. Took home the Golden Collar Zero for those three nominations. Best Picture, Writing, and Music Original Score. And those are the What You Need to Know So Far.
it's an interesting one isn't it because um i i've seen it a few times and i watched it recently so that we could talk about it and i had to double check what year it came out in because although it was 89 which is you know we're nearly the 90s it did have a feel of being a lot earlier 80s i don't know if that was just the shirts or the hair or what. it just generally felt a lot more of an 80s movie than a nearly 90s movie you know, and to that point, Marie, I think that that's part of the beauty of this film that makes it timeless. I, I don't think, um, you know, I didn't feel the same way. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. other than the fact when you're on the streets and you see the different makes and models of cars, yeah. if you took those scenes out, you know, um, he is, after all, he and his wife are products of the 60s. They're hippies and they've got the Volkswagen Beetle bus. And, <laughs> and what nostalgic person doesn't? I mean, you know, I've got a friend who's almost 50 who drives one of those around town. And so, you know, it's just, it's it, it, at least on this side of the pond, it's part of Americana. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think that. Um, yeah. I, I certainly understand what you're saying, but I felt that this was timeless regardless. And I think that's what makes this film, one of the things that makes this film stand up. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, um, I don't know if it's for me that, that Costner is so much associated with that particular time that um, I just was tr transported back to, to <laughs> the 80s with that. And I think that's perhaps as much as, as much him and his image or status Certain, as anything else. But. I was gonna say, certainly this was one of those films on his meteoric rise to fame um, and, and, and fits into those years of all, all Kevin Costner films, I think. Um, but to that point, I don't think there's an American actor of that generation that is as athletic and can play the roles as believably as Costner. I think he's the only choice. I think, I think he is um, really the glue that puts this picture in motion. Um, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't tell our view, viewing audience or our, our audio audience about how much you love baseball. And I'd like to take a little bit of credit of that. So I was, very warm-hearted that you were willing to go along on this ride to indulge my passion for baseball, my love of the game. And uh, I figured you would at least enjoy that part of it. Oh, yeah. No, you get Although all the baseball, credit. You know, baseball really kind of sort of takes a back seat to the story. This is a, this is a father and son picture. And yeah. I think that's kind of what resonated with me so much is that, uh, you know, my experience, I'm sure you could ask my brothers the same, and probably lots and lots of males across the world uh, about a strained relationship with a father that if you had to take back in a do-over, this certainly would be a pretty phenomenal way to, to have that experience. Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is the central core of the story, although it unfolds in these wonderful layers that, that Costner's character has to discover. In the most unusual of ways, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it is. No, I agree. It's, it's, there, there are one or two, but it's quite idiosyncratic in a way. I mean, you could be unkind and say it doesn't quite know whether it's trying to be a family story or a fairy story or a fantasy tale or a bit magical or if it turns out that he's... I don't think it quite made up his its mind which which way it wanted to go i don't think that's to do with me 
loving baseball but not understanding all the ins and outs i think i think it was more to do with the film not making its mind up hmm. or my is this me my lack of imagination which i know i've been accused of having before and I'll point that out as well here. I think, <laughs> I, I, you know, if you were coming to this as thinking this is a baseball film, it's a film about baseball. It's not. No, it's not. Agreed. It, 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 let's let's face that that's not. But I think the imagination takes over on a lot of levels. I mean, what farmer in his or her right mind is going to tear up the crop that yeah. feeds the family to build a baseball field <laughs> because he hears a voice uh, while he's out in the field tells him build it and he will come or they will come and you know, it's, um, if you build it, they will come. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you know, in that regard, I'm going to run out to my backyard and start uh, building some kind of circus. Cause I know in these trying times, people want a good laugh and uh, they're willing to pay for it. So if I build a circus in my backyard, would you come across the pond and, uh, and see it, you know, I, but who knows the, the voice uh, speaks to him multiple times on many levels. And it's, you know, like a good puzzle has to be put together and solved. And with the help of some colorful characters um, and, and some great actors, including what would turn out to be the, the last role of the great screen legend from a previous era, Burt Lancaster. Oh, I hadn't clocked that was his last role. Yeah, oh, that well, was that his last a, one. That's a nice way to go then. Yeah. And walking out into the cornfield. That's really nice. His character was one of the intriguing ones, actually, that had me a little bit confused. Uh, maybe we'll get to that a bit later on. I think Ray Liotta is an incredibly odd piece of casting. He I couldn't agree with you more. It scares me a bit anyway. And he, he, he dialed that right back in, apart from the one time when he actually laughs. And when he laughs, it really is scary. I would run a mile <laughs> if I ever saw him. So I just think that was a really strange piece of casting. Is that just me? Do you? No, I agree with you on that point 100%. And in fact, um, I remember as a kid seeing this for the first time and thinking, oh, why him? He's not Shoeless <laughs> Joe Jackson. And of course, being a baseball fan, I know, and, and for those out there that, that are, you know, Shoeless Joe Jackson was statistically speaking one of the best offensive players to ever play the game. But uh, in, in the um, 1919 World Series, he and several of his teammates, I believe there were eight others, I think it was the Chicago Nine. Anyway, they, they were accused of fixing the World Series and losing. Dispute between players and ownership. The ownership seemed like they were being quite greedy and, and cutting the players out of the spoils of the victories. And so they fixed the, the series and lost to the Cincinnati Reds. And... Um, Shoeless Joe was part of that. Um, some play on the fact that he was illiterate and, um, and had a change of heart and still put up phenomenal numbers in the World Series. But there is a trial. Uh, a commissioner of baseball is established, and, and he and his guilty teammates are banned from professional baseball for life. And at the end of his career, he had the third highest and still to this day has the third highest career batting average of anybody that's ever played the game for longer than 10 years. Um, so in terms of the echelon of great baseball players, he would certainly, I think, be in the conversation. One of my favorites, Ted Williams, uh, always said that Shoeless Joe Jackson was the best hitter he had ever seen. Wow. Uh, so um, in that regard, this is huge. Uh, but you bring that up, and it's kind of interesting. He's one of the topics of conversation 
in the extras feature on the anniversary edition of the DVD. Okay. Um, and, and some people who are critical, you know, baseball movie types. Um, Shoeless Joe Jackson threw right-handed and batted left-handed. And Ray Liotta hits right-handed and throws left-handed. So oh. that was something in the film and the, and the producers talked about how much hate mail they got from people that were like, you got Shoeless Joe Jackson wrong. <laughs> but they were excited to have cast Ray Liotta. And I'm going to have to throw myself into that. Like, I think this was a miscast. And yeah, I'll even be petty enough to agree. You should have had Shoeless Joe Jackson hitting from the left side of the plate because that is the, the sweetness of his swing. Yeah. And then throw from the right. But, you know, I, I'm in complete agreement. That was a long way to get to. I'm in complete agreement with you about he was just a bit odd and eerie at the same time. And I, and I don't know, maybe because we're dealing with some fiction and ghosts that they had to have kind of a mean lurking ghost. I don't know. I, I, I always found that troubling choice. Do we know, I mean, because I don't, obviously. I'd heard the name. Um, I didn't know about the scandal until the film explained it to me how clever that he has a young daughter that he has to explain everything to so that people like me also get to learn the things that we don't understand um but i didn't know whether he was known and and it sounds like you just said he is he was known before the scandal for being one of the best of his of his era in fact best ever um but do we know anything about him as a character? Was he a bit strange and abrasive? Do we know from, anything about him? Or? Well, as I say, from everything that I have read, um, the fact that he was very um, limited in his education level, um, his wife played a tremendous role in, in the later part of his life in helping to educate him uh -huh. to, to break that. You know, he, he does um, appear in kind of folklore after as having changed his name and continued to find ways to play professional baseball, not major league baseball, but in the minor leagues for a number of years in a number of different cities. He, by all accounts, was very much kind of a homebody, a very quiet, humble man um, uh, who just had a passion for the game of baseball. Mm -hmm. um, I've read some things that said that he was also very philanthropic in his later years, although um, his his path took a different direction from the accolades of a decently paid professional athlete mm -hmm. for the monetary value at the time, but died rel relatively young, didn't live to be an old man. Okay. Yeah. And so that character is a real character, um, but Lancaster's character is also a real character. He is, yeah. And, and, and there's a great story, again, this goes to the extras features, uh, which you're not going to but um, the scene in which uh, Kevin Costner, uh, who's joined at that point in the story by James Earl Jones, whose character is um, Terrence Mann? Horse Terrence, Mann. Yeah, Terrence Mann. Terrence Mann. Yeah. Yes, um, the writer uh, and political activist from the 60s. They go to Minnesota, uh, Moonlight Graham's hometown, to inquire about him, and they discover that he's dead. Uh, and in the movie, they tell you about this, right? And, and, and they go to the, the newspaper, and there's a very classy... Uh, elderly woman that reads the obituary yes, yeah. um, that she wrote. Well, it turns out in the features section, that actually was the original obituary. That was what was written about him. Oh, wow. Uh, and they, and they wove that in there so brilliantly that you would think it was just a great, you know, a great quality kind of piece of film writing when in fact it was, but it was, it was taken from the actual um, cause of that. So Moonlight Graham played one inning of one game <laughs> 
and didn't get an at bat, uh, but is listed in 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 the baseball archives as mm -hmm. having made it to the major league level. Um, yeah. He chooses a, a life of medicine because he's demoted at the end of the season. It was a late season call up. He's just playing in mop up games towards the end of the year that don't count because his team's been eliminated. And then he's gotten word at the end of that season they're sending him back to the minors. And he didn't want to go through the minor league experience again, which was a lot less paying mm. in those days. And so he went back to school and became a doctor and in a small town in Minnesota. And, you know, as we've probably heard before, how those types of individuals touch so many lives made, made me think of a movie called Doc Hollywood. I don't know if you ever remember that one. Michael J. Fox, oh, uh, Woody Harrelson's in there. Uh, you know, this big wig plastic yeah. surgeon doctor. I know that's a movie we could talk about another time, although I don't think it ever got nominated <laughs> for the best picture, but a warm place in my heart. You know, those little feel good stories of somebody yeah. who has affected their community in such a tremendous way, which was, I thought just a nice piece of the story. And then, you know, as he comes to this field of dreams and has a, has a moment with Costner's daughter. Yeah. Uh, it kind of, it kind of was a nice segue to show how that choice could have been made. Yeah. How, how the real life guy sorted out his priorities and decided yes. what, how he wanted to, to make a difference. Yeah. And so that, that leaves us with the Terrence Mann character as the other one who's picked up along the way. And actually he's not a real character, but mm -hmm is a replacement character because the real character they wanted to use kicked up a stink and said he would sue the arse off them if they actually used his name in the film. I wasn't aware about that. So originally it's J.D. Salinger and okay. Rye is the book that yeah. we're uh, talking about. One of my all-time favorites. And uh, he got in touch with them and so he heard that this was happening and he said if you use my name in your goddamn film you know they'll be held to pay so they decided that and they couldn't you know not buy him but pay him to use his name uh, he refused all of that so they created this other character instead who i guess embodied because i mean salinger's was known to be a recluse and would not have yes. participated yes. anyway so so by having and James Earl Jones is just he's great anyway you could watch him and you know, yeah. you know to have I could listen to him read the phone book he thought maybe our next podcast is six degrees of Darth Vader yeah <laughs> and, we use, and we use James Earl Jones as that central uh glue that ties all of our choices together yeah um, you know he, he he's, he's just he's such a magnificent I think underappreciated American actor just so good you know another great baseball film the sandlot i knew i was going to get another one in here oh right no i know he has seen a, a pivotal role in that uh but i guess if if anything he is one of the two kind of initial opposition forces to this story progressing which adds for the drama that's needed to make this film work yeah and actually and i like the way he goes from the grumpy old man to you know the benevolent grandpa kind of figure towards the end i like that it did make me realize though that i think the one of the things i just struggled with throughout was where it couldn't decide what it was going to be and i think had all of the characters not be all of the characters that they'd met along the way not been actual characters had they all been fictitious I might i might have been less puzzled by it because when you're dealing with actual people and things that actually happened in a fantasy way where a man builds a 
you know, a diamond in the middle of his palm because he hears a voice. I, th I think you've missed something. Go on. And, and that is the, the strained and disconnected and unfinished relationship between Costner and his father. Because his fa father loved baseball, taught him yeah. the game like so many fathers do their sons, and he's sharing that with his young daughter. But his father loved Shoeless Joe Jackson. So there's connection number one. In the 60s, when he's off to college and, and meets the woman who eventually becomes his wife, his father never gets to meet her because they had a falling out over political ideology in the 60s. But his father always loved the writings of man, uh, Terrence Mann, played by James Earl Jones. So there's that connective tissue. And the one moment where his father had played some minor league ball but never made it to the major leagues and then comes back after the war. And like so many people just goes to work in, in a job that he had to take to feed and provide for a family. He stepped away from the game that he loved so much because of his love for his family that becomes kind of sort of unappreciated. And that's, that's the doc moonlight Graham character. So yeah. there's always the connection to the father and son through these, these real people whom for all intents and purposes, they'd never met. Yeah. But they had a connection to through, you know, the lens of a wider worldwide audience. So I think I think they were brilliantly woven in there. And each of those characters' choices helped shape what will in the end, I don't know if we're allowed to give spoilers, but in the end have that pivotal moment where where his father comes out of the corn patch and, and he has that shared moment with him. Hey, Dad. You want to have a catch? Yeah. I, I, I think that's part of the brilliance of it. Okay. I wonder if those two needed to be real characters. I think they could still have set up fictional characters that meant as much to the father, but then that's probably my lack of imagination. Um, because the one bit that I, how do I put it? I was going along with all that. He's hearing voices. He's not mad. I'm happy to go along with that. And then we got to the point where Doc Graham steps out of the pitch to help the daughter. And you see his feet move and he changes, his footwear changes. And that's the point at which everybody else can suddenly see everything that's happening. And nobody seemed to be more than slightly surprise that well, like, nobody said where did this man suddenly appear from everybody just kind of accepted that and it was the one point where i thought i, I just ca i can't this is where it can't decide whether it's a fantasy or not i'm sorry i think you know james earl jones when we first meet him you know he he writes costner off as bat batty as crazy you know you're yeah. hearing voices okay you know like you should be in an institution and Costa's like, there's the voice again. And, <laughs> and it comes to recognize he's able to hear when he clears his mind of the possibility that this happens. And it ties into his own story. So Costner's character and James Earl Jones's character and Costner's wife played by Amy uh, Madigan. Amy Madigan, yeah. He can see because she believes. And, and the child has has suffered, so she's she's not conscious of of that transition. The only other person there that 
doesn't see until that moment is the brother-in-law yeah, or, or yeah. Amy Madigan's brother. And now yeah. he sees it and now he understands what this field of dreams is about because then, then James Earl Jones gives the great, wonderful, you know, preaching speech, which he delivers so magnificently and, and is the purpose of this all coming together. Um, and so I think, I think you may have just missed that. And I hope by the, the spark in your eye that you just saw the aha, now you see why this is a better film than Driving Miss Daisy for the Academy Award. Oh, no, well, you know, you always have that, that this is definitely better than Driving Miss Daisy. It is, it's a lovely film. I, I was not expecting, you know, the Bill of Rights and spitting on the Constitution to kind of raise its head. That's good. Then again, from 60s hippies, maybe we should have. <laughs> and I do love the way that she just decided, I just halted the spread of neo-fascism in America. <laughs> she said, go girl, maybe we could invite you back and we could have a go. <laughs> right? See, another example of the timelessness of this film. <laughs> from Why it's so important. <laughs> It is a, a, a film full of heart. I will say that for it. it it's not bad at all. You know, I, I enjoyed rewatching it. I thought it was a nice film. I, I liked sad Kevin Costner in a green Christmas jumper. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was really sad. Very funny. Um, uh, and I like... For those that don't, that don't quite get that, uh, yeah, he's still milling over what's going to happen as there is snow covering his baseball diamond at the family, what appears to be the family Christmas gathering in a hideous green and white holiday sweater. Yeah. yeah I had, a, I had a good chuckle at that as well. <laughs> I know, but he wears it well. And another thing I really liked, actually, I liked the music choices, both the, they actually chose some songs like, you know, he was explaining what was happening and what a day for a daydream was playing in the background and then right. he, when he goes to the, the store to buy whatever he needs and um crazy is playing in the background um and i like those little choices but i also like the score james horner's score that he wrote I, I really did think it was lovely um that kind of fantasy magical just you know really lovely music that kind of just dragged it all together. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that, you know, that could be an easily overlooked piece of the brilliance of this film. And, um, you know, I had it in my notes, but you beat me to the punch. Yeah, yes. it just it was very clever. You know, when they're on the road, they had some great road tunes um, that you could just imagine putting the old cassette tape back in the day, Yeah. you know, or, or the eight track, I guess, technically, um, or CD now, or, well, not even CD now, now I'm showing my age, uh, you know, stream it but yeah a perfect choice for a road trip soundtrack yeah it was great that's right speaking of which um do you know how far he drove because i want <laughs> i wanted to know because my obviously the geography of the states I was sure. thinking, i'm sure that's quite a distance so i got the map and then i thought wow let's see if we can figure it out do you know how far he drove <laughs> I, I didn't but i'm going to take a guess just Go you on, know then off the top of my head so they're in iowa they go to boston boston to minnesota minnesota back to iowa correct i'm gonna say i'm gonna say round trip close to eight thousand miles google maps says no google maps <laughs> that's probably says, like four so it's so I, I this is what i tracked i tracked dyersville to fenway park to chisholm minnesota back to dyersville Okay. And it was 3,139. 
math never was my greatest subject. And it says it takes, Google Maps will tell you it takes 48 hours. Well, yes, but that's obviously not, you know, nonstop. <laughs> so, well, you, you know, but, but they did switch driving. James Earl Jones did. drove for a bit while Costner slept and vice versa. So they did. Uh, certainly doable, uh, but it did long. seem like he was away a little bit longer. A yes. couple other little side tidbits, if I may. So I don't know how much uh, you're aware of uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Oh, uh, yes. Their yeah. love of baseball. They and were the extras. They were extras in their hometown Fenway yeah. Park in this film. So I challenge you the next time you watch it to pause it and try to pick them out of the crowd. Um, I, I know where they were seated because I'd read an interview where they, they talked about where they were in proximity to that. So take a look at that. And second, and not to be overlooked, but this film won the Japanese Academy Award for Best Picture that day. And I know how much the Japanese love the game of baseball. They do. So the Japanese Academy gets a little shout out from me for being right in their choice where the American Academy Awards missed this one. Brilliant. Oh, I'll definitely go back and look out because I know they're, they're mad baseball freaks. I was too, aren't I? Yeah. So. Unfortunately for the wrong team, but you know. Well, still, still quality, still quality artists, <laughs> and I'll, I'll challenge them any day. The good old fashioned Yankee uh, Red Sox rivalry game. Um, and while you're, you've probably still got the data in front of you. The cinematography. Can can you see who is the DP on that? Because uh, yes, uh, so John Lindley, who also did another, in my opinion, brilliant film, Pleasantville. Ah, yeah. About race race in America, which how uh, appropriate uh, of a timely conversation piece. But uh, yeah, John Lindley, beautifully Dude, shot. So. Fantastic job, I think. I mean, he had beauty to play with, obviously, you know, the wide open spaces and everything. But really, just absolutely gorgeous. They must have just filmed that 20 minutes a day for weeks and weeks and weeks just to get that, those few minutes of, of beautiful lighting it's gorgeous and, the, and there's some talk on the the extras about that as well so is that right definitely definitely want to get your hands on a copy of the extras yeah. disc on this one i will do i mean one of the things that the other one of the other things i really like about it i quite liked the denim shirt tie and brown leather jacket combo <laughs> costner well wears it well <laughs> But it feels like he was born in that outfit. I, if I think of him, that's kind of how I think of him, wearing that. Oh, Fair enough. Um, it's a film that kind of says, it says, baseball is better than fascism. Doctors are better than baseball. And family is better than that. And it kind of gives you all these things and says, right, this is the order. This is how your life should be. These are the priorities. And fascism is at the bottom. Interesting. It, you know, I took away from it that it talks about baseball is that connective tissue. When all hope is lost, when all is wrong in America, baseball is that thing that we can come back to and fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and families can go out to the ballpark and have a great time together enjoying a kid's game. Yeah. And puts it kind of all in perspective. I think it does have, that's not to say that, that a non-American audience wouldn't understand it, but I think it definitely um, 
is a lot more rooted in your culture and we have other things maybe football maybe soccer beg your pardon soccer um, <laughs> my, language, my language is football um yeah we would have different things but yes i, I can see where you're going with that and i can see why it, it's a popular film and and yeah completely agree with you it's a, was a much better choice than driving miss daisy but, can, I, can I put that on the board? Yeah, you can. But, nice. <laughs> but oh, I, here it comes. Yeah, yeah. Because I think we do have to consider what else was nominated, as we normally do. This is true. Um, I'm sorry, I, I overlooked that. No, that's okay uh, because it works quite nicely now. So, as we said, Driving Miss Daisy won. Uh, Field of Dreams was nominated, as was My Left Foot. Uh, which obviously didn't win, but the actor award went to Daniel Day-Lewis for that. Deservingly so. Brilliant performance. One on the 4th of July, um, which, you know, that was the period where Oliver Stone was doing an awful lot of stuff that he was kind of in his, his peak, probably. And I know that film now and then had its... I don't know if detractors is the word, but it certainly caused a lot of discussion then and now, but perhaps for different reasons. Um, and then Dead Poet Society. And I think if, if you're going to put my feet to the flames, I would choose Dead Poet Society this year, even though it in itself can be a bit schmaltzy. Um, and as a former teacher, you know, there are things about it that I just think that I can't watch it. But I would pick Dead Poet Society. What about you? I think it would have been a, twin, a coin toss between Field of Dreams and Dead Poet Society. Okay. You know, I, 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 if, you look, if you look at the performances in each of these films and then put those performances into the collective total, I think all, all of these films were... were, were in and of themselves, brilliant films. Um, from a personal preference, um, I think I probably would have had Driving Miss Daisy about fourth on that list of five, maybe even mm -hmm. third. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I go back and forth between that and Born Around the Fourth of July in terms of where I would rank these. But but certainly, Field of Dreams, Dead Poet Society. If I could use a horse racing term, this would be a dead heat uh, <laughs> for me. Yeah, because I think I think Robin Williams' performance was was the performance of a lifetime. I know, I know that you can only take so much of him and, uh, and he will win an award much later on, ironically enough, in a Ben Affleck, Matt Damon film, Goodwill Hunting, but, um, the brilliance of that performance was noteworthy, which made that picture. And without, without Robin Williams, Dead Poet Society is not on the list. So that's why I'd give a slight edge to Field of Dreams. Right. Yeah. I like Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting, actually. I do like that as a film and I like him in it a lot. Um, I don't dis I don't dislike him. I just um, I don't really know how to I don't have the love of him. that I think I admire Robin Williams as a performer rather than love him as a performer. Let's let's say that. So we're in agreement. We're yeah, so we're in agreement that this is, uh, is a better choice. Uh, than Driving Miss Daisy, yeah. Yes. Which, I mean, it didn't get any um, acting nominations and Driving Miss Daisy did. 
Um, in fact, Jessica Tandy won. She did. Um, but, and Morgan Freeman was nominated. But no, I don't, I don't think nowadays, I mean, even Morgan Freeman now, I don't know if he used the word regret, but he certainly tries to distance himself from driving Miss Daisy. Um, so I think we can quite, we can quite categorically say we've, we've booted that one out and we'll go for something else, whether it's building Fair dreams, enough. whether it's... Uh, Fair enough, and I, and I think that means that uh, it's, it's your choice, the next go round. It is my choice the next go round, and we have had a few discussions and I it's about trying to get hold of them and it's about trying to decide which ones we can talk about so we we're still arguing about what we're going to go for <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't want to impose. We'll leave our audience waiting yeah we will uh, we will let you know on Twitter what our next choice is going to be uh, in the next in the coming episode uh, hopefully we'll have a good one for you it's, it's not for want of ideas it's for uh, being able to get hold of them so uh, it was great I'm really glad that I got to watch that again and uh, it does make me want to see live baseball but don't know when that's going to happen that's two of us yeah well hopefully we'll see we don't even get it on TV much or not on the channels that I have so I guess if I paid for a channel i could watch it but then it would be on at some ridiculous time in the middle of the night <laughs> right it's, it's not worth it really but hopefully hopefully it'll happen again so let's wind up uh, thank you dan for uh, suggesting that and for uh, chatting with me about it yeah marie thanks for indulging me <laughs> not at all uh, i'm going to find my louisville slugger now and uh, relive my baseball memories um thanks for listening everybody if you want to get in touch uh, i'm on twitter at reasypie also letterboxed using the same name check out other podcasts and writings over at themovieisle.com and join us next time when we've worked out what we're going to talk about and we'll have another discussion about a film that should have won an oscar um see you next time bye 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 marie thank you all Original music composed and performed by Martha O'Sullivan.